Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Ambassador Jim Cunningham, one of the nation's most experienced diplomats having served in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia as America's ambassador to Afghanistan, Israel, uh, in an acting capacity to the United Nations and general consul to Hong Kong and Macau. He also served as the chief of staff of legendary NATO Secretary General Manfred Werner. Jim, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the program at long last. Well, thank you for asking me. Appreciate it. Um, our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the late former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems not only sponsors this program, but our strategy coverage overall. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Air Systems Defense and Space uh, sponsored our coverage of of the Air Force Association's annual Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show. Uh, Jim, thanks very much again uh, for uh, joining us. Um, uh, you are a, a distinguished graduate uh, of the Maxwell School at uh, Syracuse University, and annually we participate in the National uh, Security Program. Uh, and, and this conversation is shaped very much by some of those discussions that we've had uh, over a period of time. Um, we are now at a confluence of a number of factors. Great power competition is back in full force uh, as leading nations are exerting their influence. Uh, we're seeing a breakdown of the post-World War II rules-based order that was dominated by the United States. And increasingly, great powers are not only behaving badly, uh, even U.S. partners are turning a blind eye to Washington's demands and, and to sanctions. Uh, this week is the annual United Nations uh, General Assembly meeting. Uh, this year, the leaders of Britain, France, China, and Russia, among others, are, are skipping it. Uh, some are suggesting that that reflects the breakdown that we're seeing in international order, a diminution of inter international organizations, key to maintaining stability. Is the order breaking down? And if so, what does it mean? And what is it that can be done to stop it? Well, the, the international order that you described is certainly under a lot of stress for a variety of reasons. I don't think it's breaking down. It could. I'm, I'm worried that it could over time. Uh, but there's still a lot of forces in play that argue in favor of it, not least of which is that most of the countries of the world benefit from it, including very famously uh, uh, China, which benefited tremendously from the the framework that the international order created, which enabled it uh, to grow and, and develop into the threat, unfortunately, that it's now become to that very order. And at some point, I think the Chinese will face a, a reckoning when they, they realize, whenever this realization takes place, but I think it's coming, that they themselves are not uh, are not able to reconstitute anything like that order as they as they seem to think that they will be able to do. Um, with regard to the UN and the absence of the leaders there that you referenced, uh, I think it's significant that Putin and Xi are not coming. Um, uh, Putin obviously is a special case because uh, he would have to go through a very complicated 
U.S. process to gain admission to the United Nations, which is something that has bedeviled other foreign pariahs. Uh, but she has made a choice. He's made a choice not to come himself and not even to send his senior foreign policy person uh, to, the, uh, to the UN General Assembly. And I think uh, his absence really does send a message that China is, is, is on the path of seeking another way. I don't know what that way is. I'm not a China expert. But he's been doing a lot of other um, foreign engagements to kind of boost China's role and to develop its profile on, on the international stage. And after all, in New York, he's just he's one among many, uh, one of many um, foreign leaders, a prominent one. But he is not the kind of uh, cohesive factor that, say, an American president is. Um, American president benefits from a whole range of positive connections in uh, when he goes to the General Assembly in New York. And I'm glad to see that President Biden is going. Um, she would have plenty of people wanting to see him, but in a different atmosphere with a lot of people criticizing him there. So I think he's just decided his time is better spent, uh, better spent elsewhere. And he's also sending a message, I think, to the UN system, which is um, structurally critical of China, of things that he's doing, of their, of their behavior in Xinjiang and uh, Hong Kong, their threats to Taiwan, all of which would be on the international, all of which would be on the agenda for virtually every meeting that he would have there in the press coverage in one way or another. As to uh, uh, President Macron and Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, I don't know why they're not coming. Uh, I can only surmise that they feel that they've got more important domestic priorities than uh, meeting again with people in New York that they've met with in multiple circles over the past uh, over the past couple months. But the important thing about the UN session is that, uh, in regards to the question you asked, it's not the UN that represents the international order. Um, the UN is a, is really a product of the thinking that went into creating an international order. It's it's the it's the states that create the order. And it's the states that are responsible for seeing that it functions or doesn't function uh, based on their national policies and contributions. And that's what I'm concerned about. Not, not that people aren't going to the UN General Assembly, which after all, it's a bunch of meetings and speeches, um, but that the, the willingness of the member states themselves to stand up for and defend that order when they've got lots of different priorities is under stress. During this period, uh, since um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the United States spearheaded a global response, uh, which was terrific to sanction uh, Russia as a warning to China. Uh, still, you know, in Europe, you know, the families of sanctioned Russians are, uh, you know, continue to frolic and spend money and benefit from their properties. Turkey and the Gulf nations um, continue to covet Russian money and circumvent sanctions. Uh, China isn't exactly abiding by all of those sanctions. And it's unclear, they could be, and they are shipping military equipment, just not weapons at this point, or at least publicly known. Um, African nations don't wanna be caught in the middle. The margin of American influence has diminished, uh, right? I mean, gone are the Eisenhower days where we can humiliate friend and foe uh, alike uh, at Suez. Um, 
how does the United States gym do this, given that a lot of nations are, are you know, feeling like they're power centers in their own right? I mean, the Emirates bat well above their weight, Saudi Arabia as well. They're wealthy nations. Uh, they are throwing their weight around uh, and often throwing their weight around in opposition to what the United States wants to try to achieve. What What is the way the United States does this? and exerts influence without ultimately ending up helping she isolate. You know what I mean? I mean, basically, it's it's the Western powers that are making an issue in Ukraine and supporting it. It's not like it's a global, it's not necessarily as global a cause and we might, as we might have ourselves believe. Right. So um, there, there, it's a very complicated set of questions and issues to unravel. Let me start by saying, not to be cavalier about it, but people will make money where they can make money if they don't perceive that they have a higher interest at stake. Um, I, I regard what's happening in Ukraine as, a, as an existential threat to uh, a kind of uh, order and future that I spent my whole um, professional life trying to develop and, and protect. But for other countries, they don't necessarily see it that way, although they should because what's at stake in Ukraine, and then by extension, what's at stake with China, really will determine what the, what the world looks like for everybody in, in the next couple decades. And this, it's trite to say, but this really is, I think, um, a historically vital moment, depending on how we manage to deal with, with all of this. So to get to the question of American leadership, um, it's been quite a long time, if ever, in reality, uh, that the United States could uh, dictate terms um, in, in many of the crises and conflicts and uh, issues in which it's involved. It obviously, towards the end of the Cold War and the immediate aftermath, we had an overwhelming advantage and there was lots of talk about the unipolar world and all that sort of stuff but it was really the beginning of a multipolar world instead of a bipolar world cold war, war was essentially bipolar uh, dealing with an adversary who was not integrated into any into any international framework really except one of a revolutionary um, language and uh, the states that the soviet empire controlled and then fellow travelers like, like China, North Korea. Um, with the collapse of that order, it wasn't, it wasn't the end of history, it was the beginning of a different phase of history with, with many different countries emerging as partners and um, potential adversaries. So we're now in a situation which, you know, let's take just the case of India more often cited as one of the examples of the, the global South kind of standing on the sidelines. So what have countries like India, not to mention our own allies and partners, the people of Turkey, which is, I forget about Turkey, Turkey is a separate case, but our friends and partners that we would want to see with us standing together in defense of Ukraine. So what have they seen in the last eight years, uh, they saw an American administration under President Obama that was by most 
um, accounts pretty successful in foreign policy, but which had some glaring um, failures, failures of execution, shall we say, if not intent. Um, then you had the Trump administration, which, which I don't want to get too polemical about this, but which basically said, you know, we don't care about any of that stuff. We're going to do what we want, whether it makes sense to anybody else or not. Uh, we don't really care that much about NATO. We kind of like, at least the president kind of liked Xi and Putin. Um, and uh, Kim and North Korea. And that really, that sent a kind of shock, I think, through the international system that you can't underestimate. Because one of the, one of the principal currencies, just like in personal relationships, and this is something I think people don't think about enough when they think about diplomacy as some kind of grand concept. What diplomacy and strategy is about is really relationships that you can count on, just like in your personal relationships. And if you are a country like the United States asking people to stand with you in a place like Afghanistan, for instance, and now in Ukraine, and people are, you're, the people that you are asking are concerned that, okay, if I throw my hat in this ring, what's gonna happen to me a couple of years from now? Where am I gonna be? Because every one of these things has a political and economic and other cost attached to it. So how wholeheartedly am I going to be engaged in this if I doubt where the consistency of my leader, the person who's asking me to do this? And that's the situation that Biden is in right now. He's done a great job at restoring and building coalitions in both Asia and Europe and actually in other parts of the world that don't get that much attention. Um, so he got A plus for that in my view. But he's hampered by some of his own inconsistency. Inconsistency is the wrong world. He's wrong word. He always was had mixed feelings, to say the least, about Afghanistan. But his his decision against advice from many of his own people and many of our foreign partners who wanted to stay in Afghanistan with us, his decision to withdraw um, was was seen by them as a, a withdrawal of an American commitment that they had been assured was longstanding. And now uh, across the globe, the United States is asking friends and partners and allies to do the same thing, vis-a-vis -vis China, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Putin and Ukraine. And a lot of them are gonna do it because it's, it's in their interest and they see that and they want to see the United States succeed because they value American leadership, which is after all an absolutely unique currency in international relations. There's no substitute for it. So they want that to work, but at the back of their minds or at the front of their minds is the concern of, uh, uh, you know, how long is this gonna last? What's gonna happen in the next election in the United States, et cetera. So one diplomat at the UN one time jokingly suggested to me that it was unfair that only Americans get to vote for the American president because the American president had such an outsized effect on the rest of the world. Um, and that's, that's a fact. And we're now in one of these periods where the, 
the constancy of that kind of leadership is, um, you know, is in the, you know, let's see what happens stage. And that's not, uh, that's not helpful. You, you mentioned, I want, I want to get to how to deal with um, uh, Russia and China as more of a conjoined approach. There are some like Tom Mankin uh, who've uh, suggested that it's time not to look at these individually and individual strategy. I want to get to that in a second. But, you know, you, you mentioned Afghanistan. Um, and I want to also get a little bit into red lines uh, as well, because I think that's what you were alluding to with, with President Obama uh, and his famous Syria comment. From an Afghanistan standpoint, uh, Jim, um, you know, I mean, you committed an enormous chunk of your career one way or another. You served there actively as America's ambassador uh, at a difficult time. Um, I mean, what ultimately are the lessons? Because the, you know, the world looked at this as the United States sort of charging in, showing its power. Uh, look what we did. You know, we overthrew them, uh, you know, overthrew the Taliban. Uh, and then got embroiled in a long war. A lot of folks worked very hard, but at the same time understood what was being done might have been a little bit insufficient, even though we were making these claims. You know, we're in this until the very end. We're going to help you rebuild and develop the country and put it on a more positive course. And the Afghans have a vote on that, too. Your, your vision of what you want to achieve in Washington may be different than what it is that they want to achieve. Um Ultimately, what are the lessons from this conflict? And do you think that it actually empowered bad behavior around the world? I sense the answer to that is yes, uh, our shambolic uh, departure, but want to get a sense on both of those from you. Um, well, we could do a whole sp separate discussion. Yes, on that, that yeah, we could. A couple of hours of programming on this. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, I think the single most important lesson to be learned from Afghanistan is the, the, the difficulty under current, in the current political realm of doing anything over a long period of time. What, what my colleague and co-ambassador and or my, my first ambassador in Afghanistan was Ryan Crocker, who often spoke of the need for strategic patience in foreign affairs. That's what we had in the Cold War and in developing our, our alliances and our, our friendships and our posture in the Pacific and other places uh, around the world. We had strategic patience. Uh, we understood what the stakes were uh, we, a succession of American presidents explained that repeatedly to the American people and earned broad bipartisan support for the, the policies that we are pursuing there. Now, there are lots of issues along the way, of course, but, but by and large, we were there and, and we still are as a, as a result of that. Doing that, doing that sort of thing, having that kind of patience and that kind of vision and being prepared to deal with the fact that not everything was going to be able, not everything was going to work out exactly the way we wanted to, no matter how much money we threw at the issue, um, was, a, was a, the enduring problem. So this is one of the things that I don't want to spend this conversation criticizing uh, 
one administration after another, although it's easy to do. Um, one of the things that President Obama didn't get about Afghanistan was precisely this, that if you weren't going to be in this for the long haul and define what that long haul was, uh, you were undermining your own efforts and eventually they would, um, they would fail. To his credit, he, he set this up when he first said, my goal is to withdraw from Afghanistan, withdraw our military forces, not to affect the transition uh, from the international lead in military affairs to the Afghan lead. That was entirely correct to do. We were, we were there in too many numbers, trying to do too many things. That was not sustainable. When I, when I got there, we had 150,000 US and coalition troops in Afghanistan. By the way, there were 48 other countries there with us. Right. As well as the entire international development community um, in the UN. And we were trying to fix every broken window in the country. Uh, and that just wasn't sustainable. Uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And so, and I think most people realize that. So um, the decision to draw down to a much lower level than to turn the fighting over to the Afghans and to train them to do that was, I think, the right thing to do. What was not the right thing to do was to say, we want to withdraw American troops entirely on a relatively short timeline. And as soon as you did that, you severed the connection between a peaceful political settlement and the conflict. Because as soon as the Taliban knew that the American objective was to get out of Afghanistan, they knew they didn't have to do anything except wait for that to happen. And that in the end is exactly what did happen. So Obama didn't do this by himself. To his credit, he repeatedly course corrected People like me were arguing over for years as this discussion was going on that complete withdrawal on the kind of timeline that the president envisaged was extremely risky and highly likely not to be feasible if we wanted Afghanistan to survive. And to his credit, he repeatedly course corrected and extended and slowed down the withdrawal until eventually he decided to to stop the withdrawal and leave it to his successor to figure out what to do about it. But the fact that he was on that path, that was the signal. Had Secretary Clinton been elected president, I have reason to think she might have reversed that, but that didn't happen. And um, once, once again, it became clear that the goal of the American president was to get out of Afghanistan. It was basically game over. Unfortunately, Biden could still have reversed that because Trump also (laughs) was persuaded not to withdraw uh, entirely on his watch. And so the the question was left to Biden. And I think he made a very bad strategic and moral mistake in deciding uh, that he was going to carry out the, uh, the fatally flawed Doha agreement. So all of this goes to say, if you're when you're in this kind of project, whether it's in Ukraine now or assembling a coalition to deal with China's rise, confrontation, conflict, whatever you want to call it, 
not a war. You have to show that you have a vision for what success looks like and you have the, the patience and the, and the consistency and the political skills to generate support for a long-term strategy. There are no quick fixes in this world anymore. Even Syria, you know, nobody pays any attention to Syria anymore practically, but Syria's a nightmare and will continue to be. So, uh, and Ukraine's gonna be the same way. Putin's already lost the war in Ukraine. There's no way that he can win in any sense that restores Russia to a place of respectability in the international community and any lifetime that he's gonna care about. But bringing that conflict, however it ends, and nobody knows how it will end, but bringing that conflict to an end is gonna require long-term effort and patience and diligence and pressure and course correcting and looking at all the instruments at our disposal and the broadest possible coalition that we can build. And if we want other nations of the world who don't have a direct stake, they have a ideological or maybe a, a, um, a principled stake, but they don't have much of a direct stake if we want them to be with us in this effort to preserve what's at threat uh, in Ukraine, we need to convince them that we're going to do this over a long period of time and they're not going to be left in the lurch. And is the, um, it just so you think, uh, so do you draw a direct line between um, the uh, shambolic withdrawal and sort of empowering Putin and Xi to misbehave? Um, it's, I, it's not a causative factor. It's a, it's an enabling factor. It, I think Putin cannot have escaped the conclusion mistakenly. I hope that if he pushed hard on this, that the United States and its allies would either fold or he could splinter the Europeans from the, uh, from the Americans. I mean, his goal in this, as much as restoring Russian glory, if you will, and the Russian empire, I think his goal in this was also to split NATO and to split the European Union once and for all. And that's his strategic goal. He's got this megalomaniacal fixation with restoring the Russianness of Ukraine and Crimea, which never existed in fact. But he's also got a very hard strategic political military goal of splitting NATO and splitting the European Union, which opens the way then for Russia to do all, to all kinds of things in Europe. And that's, that's the existential threat that we, that we need to deal with. I, I want to go, because I think you were touching on this uh, in mentioning President Obama and red lines not enforced. Uh, the United States, uh, now Jake Sullivan last week in the wake of the Putin-Kim uh, meeting, uh, you know, I mean, you know, said that there are going to be repercussions for uh, the North Koreans if they do something. Well, Pyongyang's missile programs and weapons programs have benefited from technology and know-how from China from Russia, as well as from India and, and other uh, uh, nations around the world. In fact, uh, the Chinese continue to not enforce sanctions against uh, the North Koreans. Um, so ultimately, when we say, you know, this is a red line and we're going to punish you, the rest of the world either goes, go ahead, or, you know, you're, you're just not going to be able to, to do that. 
and some point to President Obama and the red line uh, after Assad used chemical weapons against his own people um, as being, you know, the premier red line uh, that was not enforced. Although there are those who say, look, this would have been a lot worse if we hadn't, you know, had we done a pinprick attack, it would not have stopped these weapons from actually scattering as the nation devolved into a greater uh, civil war. Um, so actually, it was it was a good outcome. It was better not to bomb them and collect up these weapons that you know would have could have threatened all of us back home. Ultimately, what's the right way, Jim, for the United States to impose red lines, to impose rhetoric? Because once everybody in the ecosystem gets a sense these guys aren't really serious, that commitment isn't serious, its commitment is temporary, whether it's Ukraine or Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else, uh, right? I mean, everybody's counting on us running out of patience. Putin's certainly counting on us running out of patience. She looks at the United States as eventually they'll run out of patience. And in fact, that's what kind of vexes some of our Gulf allies is, uh, are you really going to fight for me? I, I don't know. What's what's the right way to arrive at red lines, to enforce them, and then tell a clear enough of a message that you're transmitting that everybody in the zoo takes you seriously? So let's t take the Syria case as an example, because uh, there's another example that involves Israel and Syria. My experience making public threats when you don't have the means to carry means or the will uh, to carry them out is very unhelpful. Um, all kinds of governments do that sort of thing because they feel compelled to do it for their own public and political and public relations purposes. But if you're, if, you're if you're unwilling or unable to deliver on what you're threatening to do, um, it, it becomes something that you, you know, that can be ignored, let's say. Or even if you're willing to do it, if the target of whatever you're threatening to do believes that they can withstand it and the cost is acceptable to them, um, then it's not going to be effective. So that's what we, that's what we saw in, in, in the, the recent episode with um, the North Koreans, I think telling North Korea that there will be consequences if they sell uh, military equipment to, or give military equipment, whatever the deal is, to Russia, when we've already we've already got the Koreans under all kinds of sanctions and other um, attempts at political in intimidation, and rightly so, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. Um, but I think it, it, as you said, it's kind of okay. You know, I hear you, so. I don't think that's all that important. What is much more difficult to figure out is what kinds of things are going to be effective at what one is trying to do in that kind of situation, which is dissuade another leader from doing something that uh, you don't want that, that government to do. That's hard. And that's what that's what diplomacy and, and politics and, and strategy is about. How do, you, how do you affect the balance of calculation? So in, in every situation like this, it's something that I try to teach students in my obsessions on negotiating strategy. It's 
So, and, and, and these are all negotiations in one way or another. You're trying to get somebody to do something that you don't want them, that they don't want to do. You, right. you, don't, you don't want them to do, and they don't want to do what you want. That's about negotiation. Um, and that doesn't mean just talking across a table. It means how do you, how do you manipulate politically, economically, and militarily, militarily a diplomatic, if you'll use the image, a diplomatic battle space, not a battle space on a terrain field, but it's a diplomatic battle, battle space. How do you bring the instruments available to you at your disposal to affect the calculations of the other party so they will decide that they have to do, do something in order to avoid something extremely unpleasant. Some of that can take place in public. Um, much of it necessarily needs to take place in private, particularly if you are asking other, other participants, other countries in this case, to join with you in, in affecting this, this diplomatic battle space. And there's, a, there's no one solution for it, but it's, it's not achieved by making essentially empty threats or threats that may not be empty, but which aren't sufficient to achieve the goal. What are the lessons we can learn from uh, the Cold War? Um, you know, we've been working on, you know, whether you want to call it integrated deterrence, smart power uh, became, you know, these are buzzwords and more often than not, they're empty. Uh, you're from a generation of pretty hard uh, diplomats, uh, right? I mean, able to be tough, uh, very tough to try to achieve uh, the nation's ends. We've come to look at sort of security as being much more of a kinetic thing, right? Spend more, you know, nobody in the State Department is earning a higher degree or getting a PhD. You either have to do it before you become a foreign service officer uh, or after you retire, because there is no you know, it's not like the military where you, you know, there are sufficient bodies enough and sufficient money and sufficient investment. What what has to change for us to get to the point where we are as actively and aggressively and as thoughtfully negotiating um, and shaping our strategies and policies um, to get to where it is we need to be, as opposed to sometimes pulling a military lever that, you know, I mean, I, everybody understands after 9-11 why we went to war with Afghanistan, but we did Afghanistan and Iraq with not particularly clear ideas of what we wanted to do, aside from look how powerful we are, we did it, not recognizing that actually it was a net negative. They were both millstones that actually sapped American influence and power to the point where Donald Trump points to both of those campaigns and gets a lot of supporters when he says $4 trillion, what did we get from this? Um, ultimately, what, what does our approach need to be to take diplomacy more seriously, to bring these arms and national power together? We're starting to do that a little bit, but what are some of the clear Cold War lessons that have to shape how it is we go about doing this in an increasingly dangerous world where our margin of authority and power is less than it was? Well, part of it is systemic, I think, and that, that part of it has gotten worse over the past years. Systemic in the sense that you, you have to have political leadership, and I don't mean just in the White House. You have to have a political leadership that understands that these things are really important, and that requires 
both the resources and political will to get it right and that you're going to make mistakes. And, but you need to, you need to, you need to be in the, the effort, whatever it is, consistently and be, be willing to defend it and explain it to the American people. Now that has been a, a serious sh uh, shortcoming uh, for quite some time that is the, the building and creation and maintenance of a political consensus about what we're trying to do in the world and why it benefits, uh, why it benefits Americans. My experience is throughout the senior part of my career, which began, I think, when I was the chief of staff for NATO Secretary General Werner, which you were kind enough to mention, my experience is if you go and explain things to people, even if they don't agree with you at the outset, you may not persuade them. Some of them you may persuade, but you may get them to start thinking about it if they're, if they're serious and they want to know and they want to understand. And I saw this repeatedly when I was, I was the person, the person who was responsible uh, in many respects for explaining to large segments of the American public what we were doing in the second Iraq war, which was, shall we say, a difficult task since almost everybody was opposed to it. Um, so that's one thing you, you need to have a, you need to have a political cohesion or, or a willingness to exert a political will and persuasion. Uh, in defense of in defense of a policy, the second thing is you have to avoid the hubris of thinking that you know we can just throw our weight around and and get this done. The world doesn't work that way anymore. If it ever did, but it it certainly hasn't worked that way for a long time. And hubris was a big part of the problem in in Afghanistan. We just figured, particularly at you know during the first ten years, uh, and as my military colleagues kept reminding me, we haven't had 15 years of American policy in Afghanistan. We've had 15 years of about five different policies in Afghanistan. Right. We never had a long-term strategy. Um, we were never willing to, or felt the need to explain it, to go to my earlier point. And we just thought that if, you know, we're big and powerful, we kick the Taliban out with no effort and, you know, we can just, we can just ride with this and, We'll, we'll throw resources at it if we have to, and that will solve the problem. That doesn't solve the problem. That's hubris. What solves the problem or what gets effective results is taking the time and energy to understand what the situation is. And to go back to what I was saying earlier, how to affect the diplomatic battle space in a way that's favorable to you and brings your adversaries uh, into a position of relative weakness. So one of, one of my favorite military figures is Jim Mattis, who I first knew when he was CENTCOM commander. And he's a great uh, aphorist, if that's the word. And one of, one of his favorite, one of my favorite sayings of his is the admonition that the, the most important distance on the battlefield is the six inches between your ears. And there's a huge amount of truth in that. You don't get things done by doing stupid stuff, which was something that President Obama also said, and he was right about that. 
you need to be you need to be smart you need to take the time you need to understand what you're doing and what the effects are and you need to avoid the the temptation to think just because you're the United States that you can throw your weight around and people will bend to it because even if they bend to it temporarily just like nasty weeds in the garden they will have a tendency to bend back up when given the opportunity to do so and uh, sometimes to do so in ways that are quite unpleasant and that's the that's the whole the core of the problem with the the America first kind of approach to foreign affairs the world doesn't work that way and it's not going to wait for the United States to learn that lesson they're going to go their own way do their own thing some of which may be quite unpleasant from our point of view and that's what people like Putin and Xi are counting on that we won't have that we won't take the time to understand what's going on that we won't have the strategic patience and determination to stick with a particular solving a political problem we won't be smart enough because we'll be too distracted by our own politics, our own divisions, and they're gonna do everything they can to exacerbate those internal uh, problems and divisions. And that's what they're doing. It's what the Chinese are doing almost globally now, and what, uh, what Putin is trying to do uh, in Europe and with Afghanistan with, uh, with their disinformation magic prop and all that. They're working on affecting the, the political cohesion of their political adversaries. And from their point of view, I guess that's a smart thing to do, to do, although I think in the end it will be self-defeating and it will, I hope it won't work. Uh, but they're, they're playing a, a different sort of game on a different terrain. And, and that's a lesson that we should have learned uh, from the last 10 or 15 years. We're increasingly, uh, as, as I mentioned, Tom, uh, or I may have mentioned the Tom Mencken uh, of um, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments has sort of said, like, look, we need a conjoined strategy to deal with these guys. Uh, and I've mentioned this on the program before, but the book with uh, Jim Stavridis and Noah Ackerman, 2034, said that if we go to war, it, it actually might be China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran in an alliance uh, that we go to war uh, against. And in increasingly, it is seeming like an alliance where the Iranians are providing shaheds, for example. Uh, the North Koreans will be providing ammunition. The Chinese are providing, uh, certainly, uh, buying Russian oil and keeping them afloat even at a discount and, and also sending a considerable amount of military equipment. Um, we've always tried to keep these separate, right? That there is a Russia strategy, a China strategy, a North Korea, and an Iran strategy. What what does what's the right kind of strategy we need for a world in which these four, just like we're working with our allies and partners, maybe in much better faith, they're working in their own good faith effort as uh, authoritarian states that actually have a lot of useful idiots, Jim, in the West, whether Viktor Orban or uh, what's going to happen soon in Slovakia, who will be you know doing their bidding and or or American political candidates that if they get help from China and Russia, they're going to accept it and maybe whistle a different tune when they're in office. How do we how do we do this? And I, and I would say, I, I, I love that quote, which is attributed to Jim Mattis. I have heard that it was attributed to Russian intelligence uh, decades ago, but it's still a great quote, whether Jim Mattis is the one telling us or the KGB. <laughs> well, in fairness, I, I didn't hear Jim ever say that, but I, I read that in a list of- it, it, is, it is attributed to him, indeed. 
sayings of his. Um, and it struck me. So imagine we're on a we're on a playground and we're picking teams for a, for a for a game and the game is between freedom hating autocrats and democracies or proto democracies on the other side i would much rather have the team that's lining up on the pro on the democracy and proto democracy side for a whole variety of reasons but the most important one is I believe, I, I have believed, and I still fervently believe that that is the team that holds holds the winning margin for the kind of life that most people around the world want to have, given the opportunity to have it. The opposing team believes, as I said earlier, that, that we can't make that work. We can't make our team function, that our ideas are bankrupt and that we're undercutting them day by day through our our own politics and there's some there's some evidence um, to that that supports that thesis but i think that in reality the as i as i said said earlier about china itself i think the reality is that first of all though the members of that team don't have the the political values and economic opportunity and cultural attraction and appeal um, that our side does. Right. And I don't see how they can have it. So while there's certainly a conflict brewing here that's already underway and we've been slow to realize it, um, uh, particularly with regard to China, Putin's now in a way, Putin and Xi have both made a, a strategic blunder, I think. Putin, by, by just brazenly putting on the table that his whole vision of Europe and the whole notion of a Europe whole and free, whole and free, which we, champ we Americans championed along with our European partners, in which we intended to include Russia and we thought could include Russia at the time. He's now just brazenly thrown that out the window. China, on the other hand, has, has also, she himself has created, I think, a strategic error compounded in, in the last couple of years by ignoring Deng Xiaoping's admonition to, you know, bide your time, don't reveal your true capabilities and build your strength. As she came out of the gates, repudiating that, repudiating that and insisting that China's time had arrived. Uh, and quite very frankly and openly arguing that the West was in decline and, and China was in the ascendant and that the Chinese model was the model for the future. And they're still arguing that. Uh, understandably. What that has done, however, is that it has set off belatedly, but set off the, the bells of recognition about what this whole um, confrontation with China is about. And 
that accounts, along with with President Biden's rather astute diplomatic campaign in, in Asia and other parts of the world, has actually strengthened the resolve of many of China's neighbors to push back and to stand up to China in a way that might not have been the case had he taken a more um, a, a quieter and more long-term approach. And the kinds of things we're discovering now about what China is doing um, with its espionage activities, its infiltration of educational institutions, its economic coercion, its destruction of what was what was perhaps not perhaps which what its destruction of what was the freest and most economically successful city of China in Hong Kong uh, has should make has made I think clear to anybody who wants to see it. Um, that, that there is a real um, conflict brewing here. And so now we're trying to figure out what to do about it. Those, those two, uh, the two challenges are not the same, but they're interrelated because they both, um, they both uh, try to take advantage of a decline in the West that um, will enable the authoritarian, authoritarian team uh, to win on the win on the playing field right so we now can see what's happening so it's our responsibility collectively to figure out a way to to push back to fight back on this and to win that conflict and the way to to do it is to be clear-eyed about what we're about that not everybody's gonna um not everybody is going to get to get through this without paying uh, part of the cost politically and economically. And I think Europeans have done a pretty good job in that in Ukraine. They're still, they're struggling with the implications of, of China uh, and the European economy and how to disentangle some of that. But this process is now underway. And I think it will continue unless in the unless in the event that um, Donald Trump returns to the White House, uh, in which case I think we have a, we have a, a, a glaring um, difficulty uh, on, the, on the hands of the, uh, of the American people looking towards the future. Let me ask you one uh, last uh, question in the uh, unfortunately short time we have left. How does the United States deal with allies and partners that are uh, drifting away for reasons of their own, right? Bibi Netanyahu wants to recraft a more authoritarian uh, Israel. Uh, it's in front of the Supreme Court right now and, and where we're going to go. Um, has struck condominiums with nations in the region that you know sort of ended up in the Abraham Accords, but was built in, in terms of mutual, uh, right? I mean, that those alliances were built among Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other nations in the region uh, against Iran and Iran's nuclear program. You know, whether it's the UAE or Saudi Arabia, they don't necessarily want to choose. They are benefiting from trade. They're angry at the United States uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, how does the United States deal with allies and partners that are in some cases not on, on the same 
pages, Washington, and are actually actively, right? I mean, I've heard Israelis say, hey, look, China's the future and and we've got to be much closer to China because, you know, you guys are too preachy and, you know, you criticize us and and nobody wants to be criticized ultimately, Jim. But at, at some point, you know, the, the United States is, you know, in, in some things like democracy should be consistent in the messages it delivers. Anyway, how does the United States work increasingly with fractious allies that are actually driving their own agenda that might include not really being as tough on China and Russia as we need them to be? It's difficult to make a generalization because um, all of those countries are individually, there, there are some common connections between them, but um, they're also individually quite distinct in their own situations in the world. Um, and some of them are genuinely torn. Uh, some are less so. They're, some are more clearly just trying to seek uh, their un seek unilateral advantage or to put themselves in the best position possible. Um, since you you raised Israel several times in the course of this conversation, so let me just say a couple words about that particular part of the equation. First of all, so going back to what I said earlier about doing stuff as opposed to saying or making threats in public, it, when the Israelis saw a real threat to themselves from uh, from Syria, uh, from the uh, nuclear reactor there, and and from Iran, um, they they did stuff. They didn't talk about it. They still don't talk about it very much. Um, but they acted, and and everybody got the message. Um, they're in a they're in a uniquely difficult position um, that I, that could also be the subject of a whole different discussion and program. But they're in a uniquely difficult position given their 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 turbulent internal politics now. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu's own political difficulty, political and legal difficulties, um, and the situation that they are they are in in their region the latter part the situation that they're in in the region has actually improved um, which is a good thing um, whether we will have the uh, the political wisdom to take advantage of and, and nurture that um, i don't know but there's there is definitely a a new series of relationships uh, and initiatives to to be developed there if we can figure out how to do it in a situation which some of the some of the putative partners are not exactly the kind of the kind of people that we want to um, let's say we have conflicted relationships with some of those with some of the partners in that enterprise particularly with Saudi Arabia uh, but with others so we just need to, it's, it's not a satisfactory answer, but we need to be smart in figuring out how to maneuver that. But when I was ambassador to Israel, I was already arguing with Netanyahu and others that there was a possibility to build a new Israeli relationship in the Middle East. And that should have provided an incentive 
for both the Israelis and the Palestinians to actually negotiate seriously with with each other on a peace deal, which didn't happen. Um, and now I think it's not going to happen, at least not for any future that most of us care about. Uh, but the the potential is still there to develop a much much more secure framework for the Israelis in the Middle East, which is a a decades long goal. Um, whether that the possibilities for that can be realized in the face of an is, Israeli politics and a an approach by Netanyahu to his own politics, which is I think very um, threatening for Israel's future. Uh, remains to be seen, but the potential is there. That's a good thing. Um, how do you get people, how do you deal with difficult partners, I think was the essence of your question. And the way to do that is you have to take them one by one. You have to understand where the, the balance of leverage and power lies in your relationship on over a particular issue and what matters to each party more which is something that we consistently also get wrong. You don't, you don't win in a negotiation about something like this if you underestimate your partners, your, your adversaries, or whatever it is, partner or adversary. If you, if you underestimate their commitment on a particular issue, because then you underestimate the amount of incentive or pressure that needs to be brought to bear to get them to change course. And it's not just Americans who consistently do this, but it's a it's a it is a consistent problem in, in international relations, as it is in your personal relations with your neighbor. Let's say, if you don't understand that something is really important to the other person, and therefore you don't understand that he has more invested in whatever the outcome is than you do, uh, then you're going to be you're going to be on your uh, you're going to be in a disadvantage dealing with them, and that's the kind of thing that you need to find a way to get right. And that's why you need expertise. You need a professional and well-equipped and well-sourced foreign service in this case. And you also need an effective and sophisticated military instrument because the military instrument is most influential often when it's not used, but its potential is there. Um, let me ask one last uh, question and it's, uh, in, in about a minute. Um, are, are we setting a bad precedent uh, in, uh, you know, giving Iranians six billion dollars for five Americans at one point two billion uh, a person when, you know, these guys are innocent, just like uh, Brittany Griner uh, ultimately was uh, innocent. Um, there was a prisoner swap and we exchanged, you know, Victor Boot, um, you know, a, a pretty unsavory individual for uh, an all-time great basketball star. Are, are we getting ourselves into potential future trouble? Well, this is one of the most difficult and painful kinds of decisions for uh, an American president to make, I think. When I was ambassador in Afghanistan, we also made a very difficult deal with the Taliban to get back an American soldier who had been who had deserted his post and had been captured by the Taliban and kept prisoner for years, along with a number of other American hostages the Taliban were holding. Um, it's, it's very painful to be put in a position where you, you know that um, you, have to, you have to pay a price 
to to get somebody out of a situation that they shouldn't be in and you don't have any other uh, any other way to affect their release i don't like it it is you know we had a pretty clear rule and back in the old days not that long ago but back in the old days that you didn't negotiate with terrorists because that would only encourage further um bad activity uh but not to coin a phrase, it is what it is. And we're not the only government that's been confronted with dealing with this issue over the years. Um, I, I don't know, I'm not gonna pass judgment. I don't like it very much, I have to say. Uh, but there's all kinds of rationales that you can, you can make for what, whatever the price is you're gonna pay. But the fact is you are, you're paying a price but on the other hand, if you don't pay that price, you may have come to the conclusion that you've come to the end of the road and there's, you know, there's nothing else to be done. So what are you gonna do? Allow these people to, to languish in jail and remain there forever in the hopes that somehow um, a light bulb will go off in Putin's head and say, oh, well, shit, I should let that guy out of jail. Um, the, the bad part of the deal is we didn't, it wasn't comprehensive. Uh, the, that is the deal for Brittany Griner. Um, it looks, at least it looks like we've got a pretty comprehensive deal uh, that's taking place with the Iranians. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just a difficult, more, very difficult moral and practical issue, particularly when you look the family members in the eyes and tell them how option, how limited your options are for getting their, bringing their loved ones back home when everybody knows they should be there. And in the end, uh, Jim, it's about tough diplomats who can make things happen behind the scenes often. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, d diplomacy is a difficult enterprise. And it's not just people sitting across from a table talking to each other, giving speeches. Uh, and one of my early mentors, uh, rather well-known ambassador in the State Department named Reggie Bartholomew, who was extremely intelligent and capable, but also tended to make people angry with some of the things he did, uh, took me aside uh, one time. I don't remember what the issue was, but people were people in the State Department were complaining about something that he had done as and he was ambassador to NATO at the time. And he took me aside and he said, uh, look, Jimmy, diplomacy is a contact sport. You got to you got to learn to take the hits and you have to learn to give them too." And that's one of the lessons that I never forgot about, you know, what what this business is really about. And it's not about being nice. It's about getting results without being overly unnice. Well, sir, uh, thanks very much. Uh, absolute pleasure uh, having you on the program. Would love to have you back because each one of these, uh, as you mentioned, is a much longer and deeper uh, program. Thanks so very much for all your time. My pleasure. Thank you.